Welcome to Season 3 of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. This season is a little bit different. It's all about NATO. Yes, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. With the help of media and defense experts, we'll be breaking down what NATO is all about. We'll be focusing on cyber attacks, decision making, public policy, crisis management, and you know it wouldn't be media-minded if we didn't sprinkle in a little disinformation in the mix. Join us as we take a look at the organization that has presided over 30 years of Western defense. This podcast is produced by Shata UK, the leading political and media literacy organization, and is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US mission to NATO. I'm your host, Matteo Bergamini, founder and CEO of Shata UK, here to teach you more about global security through the lens of NATO. Let's get to it. Today we're joined by Sir Adam Thompson, KCMG, um, who has been the director of the European Leadership Network since November 2016 before joining the ELN. Uh, Sir Adam had a 38-year diplomatic career in the British Diplomatic Service, preceded by short spells at the World Bank and at Harvard. His final diplomatic posting was at the UK Permanent Representative to NATO between 2014 and 2016. Prior to that, from 2010, Sir Adam served as British High Commissioner to Pakistan, and between 2002 and 2006, he was a British Ambassador and Deputy Permanent Representative to the United Nations in New York. It's an absolute honour to meet you. Uh, I'll buy it virtually, of course, uh, courtesy of the current uh, state of affairs that we're living in. Um, but thank you for joining me. Thanks, Matteo. It's a pleasure. I'm glad to be doing this. Amazing. So I'm going to start off with a. I'm going to start start you off easy. Uh, how do NATO members make decisions as a collective? Uh, well, uh, it's complicated. Is the answer uh, because uh, multilateral? That means m- many countries. Uh, diplomacy is always complicated. Uh, NATO is uh, an alliance of sovereign states. Uh, It does have an international secretariat, but that has no powers of its own, unlike the European Union, for example. So this is now 30 sovereign countries coming together and trying to reach collective decisions. Uh, That involves a a daily interplay between their capitals and uh, their representatives at NATO headquarters in Brussels and in other NATO entities around the world, uh, all negotiating and trying to find common ground and agree common positions. So it's the it's the diplomatic dance, it's uh, the pushing and shoving uh, to try and reach uh, agreement uh, on uh, common interests. Mm. 
as you can as you can probably tell i i uh i fibbed a little bit there on the starting it easy because uh <laughs> like any international organization there's a there's a lot of moving parts um to it and and just to dig a little deeper there because obviously i mean in in the uk we in parliament we make decisions by a, a majority system right so in the legislation i mean in the in the legislature so so parliament um so say we need 30 uh, 326 mps to pass a bill out of uh, 650 so 650 um how does nato differ from this decision making process like is there such a set decision making process in in nato Oh, yes, there is. Uh, but it is fundamentally different from that you've described in the UK Parliament. So uh, to put it really starkly, in NATO, if you want to agree anything, and if you, if you imagined it was the UK Parliament with 650 members, every one of those 650 members would have to agree before anything was agreed. My God. So every... <laughs> Everything that NATO does, that there is one exception that I can describe, mm. but basically everything that NATO does has to be by consensus. Consensus means everybody has to agree to the decision. Uh, so uh, there's a constant effort at finding compromise. Uh, and uh, otherwise, NATO as an alliance just doesn't move forward. So there's no voting. Uh, this is, again, a difference with the European Union as well as, as well as with the British Parliament. Nobody can be voted down. Mm -hmm. uh, just one country can block any NATO decision. The, the one exception to that uh, is that uh, in uh, the process of NATO defense planning, uh, it is possible to tell a country that they are not meeting NATO's defense requirements and to send them away to think again about whether they can do better on what NATO is asking of them. Mm -hmm. It's like a uh, almost like a club of nations where you've got a minimum entry requirement and if you don't pay your, your fee, you're kind of told well maybe you might want to rethink that a little bit yeah well that's uh yes it, it's certainly a club uh quite a lot of countries want to join it uh there are minimum requirements you don't get in unless you can actually contribute to the collective security mm. of the alliance so the decision is in the hands of the existing members as to who joins uh and uh, th this is a very particular kind of club uh, where uh, all the members of it uh, have an equal say and where any one of them can block uh, a, a proposed change to the dress code or anything else. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. And it's that difference, isn't it, between um, supranational organizations and international organizations, you know, supranational meaning, you know, above the state, i.e., basically the European Union, which, um, you know, essentially works almost as, as a layer above its member states. And it can, as you say, you know, it can um, arguably, for lack of a better word, punish a state or, or, or push them in a certain direction, whereas uh, NATO very much works on the same level as the states. And it's the states that are on the driving seat in a lot of ways. And that's exactly right. Um, NATO, as I mentioned, does have international staffs that service the, the process and the 
running of the organization, but they have no autonomy of their own. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the in, in practice, in the real world, they have their own opinions. They try and help the uh, search for compromise uh, between allies. But as a formal matter, uh, it's purely a question of the 30 nations that belong to the alliance right and and what is article 4 how does how does it link to how member states raise concerns yeah well let me let me step back from that for a second and and just say a word about the north atlantic treaty mm. signed uh in uh 1949 in april and ratified the same year in in august uh, among the original members of the North Atlantic Alliance, because it, it, it is a remarkably simple, short document. It's just 14 articles, uh, and uh, that is so different from, for example, the European Union or even the Charter of the United Nations. Uh, and it has meant over the years that uh, NATO has had a, a very considerable flexibility to uh, decide uh, what it is really about, what its rules actually are. Uh, some of the articles are rather more important than others. Article 4 that you mention is an important one. Uh, it says that uh, any uh, ally uh, can bring to the attention of uh, the uh, of the rest of the alliance uh, a matter or matters when, uh, in its opinion, the territorial integrity, political independence, or security of any of the allies is threatened. Uh, so this is a way of forcing a consultation uh, inside the alliance on, on serious matters. Uh, it, it, it's quite a formal process. Uh, so it's different from the day-to-day -day consultation that goes on around NATO committee tables all the time. Uh, and it is usually where one member or another thinks they are in the middle of a crisis. Uh, I remember as ambassador, Turkey bringing uh, under Article 4 to NATO the fact that Russia had violated its airspace and that they, the Turks, had shot down a Russian uh, fighter jet. I remember this story. This is quite... This was in November 2015, yeah. uh, and it was a tense moment. Yeah, yeah, no, I can imagine, and that I mean, were you obviously serving in that moment? I mean, did you, um, did you feel like it, it could have it could have boiled over, um, from your own personal perspective, or or did you feel like it was, it was tense? I mean, you you could just feel it in the way the media was covering it and so forth. It was definitely a uh, a difficult moment, but did you feel like it was ever going to boil over? There is always that risk, mm. and the relationship with Russia at that point, between NATO and Russia, uh, uh, could hardly have been worse. Although I have to say, I think it is now worse. Than I was going to say, uh, I was, was going to try and avoid mentioning Ukraine. But <laughs> but, but um, Russia had annexed uh, Crimea and uh, uh, intervened in 
eastern Ukraine uh, in 2014. And uh, it was... Uh, incautiously uh, flying quite dangerous missions close to uh, civilian aircraft, uh, NATO military aircraft, NATO vessels. Uh, and uh, Turkey, in its wisdom, uh, decided that uh, having tried repeated warnings, uh, it needed to take action against Russian aircraft transiting its uh, airspace without permission. Uh, these are the sorts of things that potentially can trigger larger conflict. Uh, so Turkey was very keen, strikingly keen, to wrap itself quickly in a NATO flag and make clear, I guess, to Moscow that uh, if the Russians made trouble, they would be in some sense dealing not just with Ankara, but with the whole of the NATO alliance. On that occasion, uh, Article 4 uh, was a means for the Turks to bring this in a rather dramatic way to the alliance, but uh, it wasn't wholly appreciated by all allies. They, you know, they were, they were, there, there is never an identity of views among 30 allies. Uh, you know, it's difficult uh, to agree on. Uh, I mean, on, if you get anyone, uh, any thirty on, people on in menu a room. choices right. in a restaurant <laughs> among thirty, uh, but but uh, in this case, I think it's fair to say some allies thought that the Turks had acted uh, hastily and more aggressively than necessary, and did not want NATO dragged into this particular fight. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, which which you know is, is is to some extent understandable, and um, that brings you quite nicely onto my onto my next um, question. That I wanted to ask is obviously you served as the UK permanent representative to NATO between 2014 and 2016, and ironically, the, the, your previous story kind of kind of spells this out quite nicely. But how do you balance kind of national security of the nation you're representing? I mean, in this case, obviously the UK. Um, with the different aims and national security issues and so forth of of NATO members, how do you how do you balance that out and, and, and come up with a compromise? Well, I'm, I mean the the the, uh, the the simple answer is diplomacy. I mean, you know, that's what I and other British colleagues are, are paid to do at NATO, mm. uh, and it has uh, more than one aspect to it. So uh, you are pursuing. British interests at NATO, mm -hmm. uh, trying to deliver on the instructions you've received from London about what outcomes uh, the British government wants to achieve at NATO. And you're doing your very best to persuade uh, the other allies to think like you think uh, and to embrace your ideas. And if they won't, then you're trying to find second best fixes that will work for them as well as for you. But there's another important function for the ambassador and his or her team at NATO, which is explaining back to London what is going on at NATO, how other allies are thinking, uh, and uh, what it's going to take uh, to achieve a satisfactory compromise. So you're kind of a mediator. Uh, you do represent your 
country, but you're also helping your country understand uh, the uh, environment in which you're seeking an outcome. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, of course, and, it, and it's that that kind of compromise slash diplomacy, trying to get the best situation yeah. um, for your well, nation. I mean, to, I mean, to mm-hmm. give you to give you an, a, a, a concrete example, mm, please. Uh, I I arrived at NATO in April 2014. Uh, when it had already been decided that the UK would host the next NATO summit uh, in September 2014. So we were just like four and a half uh, months away from the NATO summit. Oh, wow. Uh, Russia had just annexed Crimea, thus totally transforming what uh, this summit, which was going to be held in Wales, (laughs) actually had to do and and had to respond to uh and so there was hell of a, a time to join that was it was it yeah uh it was a good time it was interesting i earned my salary i think and uh in four and a half months uh britain which obviously needed you know in, in a visible way a success uh from this summit because it was hosting it mm. and which needed a success uh, substantively, because we needed NATO to come up with adequate responses to uh, this uh, terrible event, uh, uh, we really had to get our, our skates on. Uh, and so uh, I and my team in Brussels found it uh, necessary both to push NATO allies to think really ambitiously about what could be achieved at this summit uh, and to feed allied ideas back to London uh, for consideration uh, and to explain uh, what would and what would not fly uh, with our various allies uh, and to uh, massage all that into a summit outcome that uh, counted as a, a success for Britain, I believe it did, and a success for NATO, which I think it also was, at least a first step on the long road to responding to a changed international environment in Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. And it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting because a lot of these um, we're seeing now live, you know, ha- happen as we speak. And um, I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, go into go into the whole Ukraine Russia situation too much but I mean it just shows you know the the intricacies of NATO but also the intricacies of geopolitics as it stands at the moment um where things are arguably heating up a little bit um whereas before we had a, a pause almost um yeah yeah NATO now has a, a great deal to do because uh, Russia has chosen to bring a, a long festering crisis a, a, a fundamental difference between Russia's view of security in Europe and NATO's to a a head. And Mm. uh, uh, what happens in the next few weeks is going to greatly shape uh, Russia-West relations and Euro-Atlantic security for quite a long time to come. Um, but I don't want to date this podcast. Yeah, uh... <laughs> so, uh, so let us press on. Um, but I, I, I wanted to kind of delve a little bit deeper into um, the kind of functions and and and, and the, the the branches of NATO. And I wanted to start off with the um, North Atlantic Council. What is the North Atlantic Council? What's its function? 
so uh, let, let's talk about the, the main branches of uh, what there is at NATO. Mm -hmm. uh, the North Atlantic Council is one of just two bodies that were established by the North Atlantic Treaty of, of 1949. Uh, and uh, it's set out in uh, another of these 14 articles of the treaty, uh, Article 9, uh, which says that uh, the uh, signatories hereby establish a council on what on which each of them shall be represented to consider matters concerning the implementation of this treaty. Uh, and the council needs to be organized to be able to meet promptly at any time. Nowadays, that means uh, 24 or 48 hours uh, as the maximum allowable time for bringing uh, the 30 representatives uh, together, uh, and the council is allowed to set up subsidiary bodies as necessary uh, and immediately established something called in the treaty a, a defense committee, but that has come to be known as the, the military committee. So the North Atlantic Council is the, the, day, is the governing body of uh, the North Atlantic Alliance, uh, and it in a day-to-day -day mode uh, is, uh, uh, has got uh, ambassadors, people like me uh, sitting on it, supported by their staffs, but uh, it can meet at higher levels as well. Uh, so uh, it meets at uh, foreign minister and defense ministerial level regularly. And periodically, as I've been talking about, it meets at summit level, at, at a head of government level. Uh, it doesn't have to be an ambassador. Uh, you know, the country uh, concerned can have anyone uh, sitting in that seat if they so choose. And since there are a lot of meetings of the council on a day-to-day -day basis, it's quite often the ambassador's deputy uh, rather than the ambassador. Uh, uh, they will take turns and, and share the load. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the, that's the council. Uh, I'd go on to talk about the next uh, body, which, as I say, was created under the treaty, uh, nowadays called the Military Committee. Mm -hmm. And this uh, is composed of the senior military representatives of each ally at uh, NATO headquarters, normally uh, a, a, a a very senior three-star military officer, um, uh, which uh, is uh, the entity uh, that provides the military advice uh, and uh, is the senior military authority in NATO, because NATO is both a, a, a political organization uh, and a military one. Uh, it, its responsibilities is are to provide uh, military uh, advice on the basis, as always, of consensus among the 30 military representatives, uh, advice to the North Atlantic Council and to uh, other NATO bodies uh, that require it on military policy and on military strategy. Uh, and it also is responsible for providing the guidance to NATO's to strategic commanders, the Supreme Allied Commander Europe and the Supreme Allied Commander Transformation. Um, I'll 
I'll pause on those two key bodies, the council and the military committee, but would it be helpful if I went on to talk about the allied commands? Well, I was actually going to, I mean, you're, you're kind of uh, plowing through all the questions I had, actually. That's, that's exactly, yes, it would. And just to clarify, so the, the it's kind of like the split between the kind of civic or, or the kind of the, 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 the citizen um, portion of it, i.e. North Atlantic uh, Council being the um, political or the, or the civilian arm and the um, military committee being the um, military arm. So it's, it's kind of like the, it's the separation right. of, of, that, of those kind of both those views. But or, it's, or... Important, it's important to stress that uh, NATO is an alliance of democracies uh, uh, with some historical exceptions. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the principle of civilian control of the military is extremely important at NATO, just as it is in any country. So just as in the UK, it's the prime minister who tells the military what to do. So at NATO, it is the North, the civilian North Atlantic Council that gives instructions to the military committee and seeks advice, not instructions, from the military committee. Mm -hmm. so, I hope that distinction is is clear. So the, no, it, it is the military is the military committee essentially gives the advice, and the North Atlantic Council then takes the decision act, actions, yeah. whatever the whatever the advice is. And and on so moving on to the Allied uh, command operations, um, what is what is its function? What's so this now we're turning to the the NATO's military. Uh, structure, uh, if you like. Uh, and there are two uh, uh, so-called strategic commands. Um, one is uh, the Allied command for operations. Uh, and this, this is responsible for uh, literally all uh, NATO's military operations. Uh, so uh, it, it has a number of subordinate headquarters uh, uh, to uh, uh, oversee the alliance's military activities, uh, but it operates uh, not just at the strategic level, uh, so for, for military planning, uh, but also at the operational level mm -hmm. for uh, conducting and shaping operations, uh, and also at the the tactical you know really boots on the ground level uh its uh, uh headquarters uh, is uh, known uh, as the supreme headquarters of the allied powers in europe so by the uh, neat uh, acronym shape s h a p e uh, and the head of the allied command for operations is a general called the Supreme Allied Commander Europe, you know, the Supreme Allied Commander in mm -hmm. Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a very grand sounding title uh, that uh, has a rather World War II ring to it because uh, it was uh, set up, you know, while uh, we still had uh, uh, large numbers of American forces in Europe in the wake of 
the Second World War. And as the Cold War began to develop, that's what brought NATO into being. In right. I mean, it was severe instability after the war and then obviously the, the follow on uh, Cold War. No created this this affair so it, it, it makes sense for that to have that those kind of um hangovers exactly. of the second world war the um so 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 shape uh, which is based also in belgium and uh, so nato headquarters is in brussels in mm-hmm. belgium and shape is in another belgian city called mons uh in belgium uh shape has been around uh, more or less as long as uh nato has been the other uh, Allied command is uh, a bit different. Uh, and, is this the Allied uh, Command for Transformation? That's right, Allied mm-hmm. Command Transformation. Uh, it's of uh, much more recent uh, creation, uh, and it's re- it's kind of the uh, the NATO think tank, uh, if you like, uh, for uh, military matters. Uh, it's responsible uh, for. Uh, ensuring that uh, everything on the military side of the alliance, NATO's military structure and uh, NATO's military capabilities uh, remain relevant and capable and and, and credible. Uh, And uh, believe me, uh, if that doesn't sound like a lot, uh, it actually is because (laughs) the international context uh, is changing so fast technology, including military technologies, are developing so rapidly uh, that uh, it's it's a constant effort uh, to stay uh, abreast and to make sure that NATO's uh, military posture is appropriate. I mean, I'd say that anybody that that thought that wasn't a tall order, it must be living under a rock because the amount of examples we've had just in just in our own lives, you know, the, the the amount of technological advancement from a kind of civilian perspective, just just from the stuff that we use and the improvements and so forth. So um, that, you know, all comes with its own unique threats. And we've seen um, the levels of disinformation, like, like I mentioned earlier about, you know, from the pandemic. But not only that, you know, we've seen how you can, um, you know, we've... we've different levels of of um of effect we don't quite know you know the extent of it but you can see how disinformation can really start to destabilize countries destabilize democracies um start to pit people against each other whether it's done by you know a, a foreign actor whether it's done by an individual with uh, way too much time on their hands or whatever else like these these kind of things have have a have a security implication um and completely right uh, uh and and just to uh name a, a, a few of the technologies that now are military militarily relevant mm. uh, you've talked about disinformation and uh, we regrettably now have to talk about information warfare uh, essentially you know, the, active, yeah. the active use of uh, information for military and and, and defense advantage uh, one aspect of that that I find very troubling is so-called deep fakes where uh, an individual or a country can fake something uh, in order to uh, trick uh, an adversary. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can imagine uh, President Putin 
uh, or us watching a, uh, a deep faked announcement uh, as if President Putin is announcing the invasion of Ukraine or worse, uh, an, yeah. an attack uh, on NATO, but it might not actually be real. Yeah. Uh, another technology is uh, artificial intelligence, which can help us with decision making, but can also take control of it if we're not very careful. And then there are uh, there are military robots, uh, there are drones, there uh, there are there are developments that are potentially very destabilizing in mm -hmm. space. So uh, the, there's a great deal for Allied command transformation to think about and plan for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and without making it sound like a, a sci-fi horror horror film, uh, these things are, are, are very much a, a concern, not just um, from a military from military perspective, but also the fact of, of you know what is what is ethical, what does ethical war, warfare looks look like? I mean, is there such a thing? Um, but you know, when you've got drones, you take away any kind of human connection to what you're doing, um, which can make it even more brutal um ai is quite an interesting one because um although they can help us make decisions the people that code they are ai it's been proven that the biases that we hold as human beings end up going into the ai algorithm so you know if you you know if you have an overwhelming amount of coders that happen to be men for example then that that ai may turn out to be um sexist in terms of its decision making so there's all these kind of other considerations that need to be brought yeah. in and the deep fake ones are really interesting one because there was a video that went viral not too long ago of a comedian that um well the video was of um president obama former president obama and he was doing an address um and then the screen splits in two and you realize that it's not him. It's this this voice actor slash comedian doing uh, doing the impression. But it's crazy how um, accurate it sounds and how you can make the lips move in a certain way that it, it literally looks like the person talking. Like it's very, very, very hard to tell if that person is is real. Or, or if yeah. that video isn't and if you're in a momentary kind of you know you see that video and you kind of panic as you say you know putin declaring you know an invasion of, of ukraine or whatever like that would worry people and people wouldn't necessarily um critically think actually is this true let me turn on the bbc they may just end up sharing it because they're they're, they're worried you know like, i mean look at the way we acted around the pandemic people were sharing um fake stories around the pandemic left, right and center, because, you know, these kind of things breed uh, fear and uncertainty and, and people react emotionally when it comes to those kind of things. You make great some great points there, I think, uh, about uh, the, the, the way that technology impacts and the importance of the ethics of it. Uh, I'd like to build on that just to make one other point, sure. which is that um, we in the West have been accustomed uh, to uh, both peace in our immediate area and the freedom to pick and choose our wars. Uh, we may, you know, whatever we may think of Iraq or Afghanistan, they were not exactly existential for the British population or the American population. No. Uh, some of these technologies and some of the risks that we face in the 21st century uh, are absolutely threats to our way of life and they come 
straight into our own homes and onto our streets. Uh, you've talked, we've, we have talked about deep fakes and what we see uh, on our uh, laptops uh, or our televisions, uh, but cyber attacks, for example, which are now becoming uh, sadly almost routine, uh, are, have, have the potential to shut down our cities. Uh, uh, so uh, 21st century conflict uh, is, is potentially a great deal more personal uh, for us and our societies than we have been accustomed to for many decades. Uh, it's something that NATO, of course, is there to deal with and that it takes extremely seriously. Uh, but it's also something for every one of us to think about. We, I think, I'm afraid, are too complacent that our ways of life are just going to continue without uh, appalling disruption and conflict if we're not careful. Yeah, no, I, I think I think there's 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 a lot of um, a lot of truth in that, especially if we uh, take into account obviously the effects that climate change are going to have on, on population movements and and you know resource scarcity and all those kind of um, wonderful things that we may or may not um, be be looking forward to in our maybe not in our lifetimes but certainly in our in our kids and our grandkids' lifetimes. Um, Moving on to to decision uh, a little bit more about decision making because I'd love to to know a little bit how and how NATO balances military decision making um, versus diplomatic decision making. Now, how and obviously I'm, I'm you know I'm sure no one can can disagree that obviously the diplomatic option, if possible, is always better than military intervention. Um, but how does that that those two kind of balance in terms of like when? When is a diplomatic kind of decision just just not enough, and we we've got got to do something? Oh, I see. I thought, the, yeah. Um, so I've explained that mm. uh, as at national level, so in NATO there is firm civilian control of uh, military action, mm -hmm. um, and uh, the, the the question of therefore what. Uh, tools are most appropriate um, is is a, 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 a civilian decision. Uh, NATO, NATO uh, has identified for itself three main roles. Uh, so the first and most important uh, and enduring one is collective defense. That's what NATO was created to do. Mm -hmm. You know, stronger together all for one, one for all. Uh, a second role uh, has been crisis management, and uh, that is how uh, NATO basically defined its role in Afghanistan, for example, uh, or uh, in other functions like earthquake relief for Pakistan in 2005. And a third function is uh, uh, cooperative security, which is working with partners to help build a more general uh, security environment. NATO has over 40 uh, other non-NATO countries who are 
partners with it uh, in various different programs and different ways. But the question of military action is really for those first two uh, roles, either uh, collective defense uh, or crisis management. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, uh, given the uh, deterioration in relations between great powers, uh, particularly NATO countries, Russia and, and China, uh, the focus is back on collective defense. Uh, NATO is never going to uh, take uh, aggressive military action uh, in pursuit of uh, its defensive purpose, uh, and it never wants to take military action at all. It will always, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a no-brainer. No it will always want to pursue a, a diplomatic uh, path uh, if it can. Uh, but it needs to be clear that if the diplomacy doesn't work, it is capable of defending itself. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, although NATO has never had to use military action for collective defense, it has always successfully deterred its adversary, basically the, the Soviet Union, as was, uh, it, it is uh, constantly taking uh, civilian decisions about its military posture and its military activities to make sure that anybody who might think of attacking the alliance uh, thinks again because uh, the defense looks uh, serious enough, threatening enough uh, that nobody is going to take NATO on. I don't know whether that really answers the question because <laughs> you, you asked a question which is really a, a uh, context dependent. I mean, uh, uh, NATO deals with a with a with a real world and and real crises, and it has to decide uh, as those crises unfold uh, how to deploy uh, it, its military capabilities to best effect. Uh, what diplomacy mm -hmm. is possible, uh, and so the balance, uh, if you like, is is is, is shifting according to circumstance all the time. That's what the, the North Atlantic Council that we've talked about is there to debate uh, and to take decisions on. Mm -hmm. No, of course. And it's and it, it goes back to that idea of flexibility, doesn't it, that you mentioned um, a little while ago, that because its, it's treaty isn't, um, you know, incredibly long and there is that ability to be flexible and react to is changing environment um which, which brings me quite nicely on to um uh, a mention of accountability that i would love to and obviously um when we look at democracies we always um have this kind of at the forefront of our minds you know how how are decisions accountable um to the the people that in the end those uh those people in power end up serving right the the, the individual citizen and of course ambassadors to nato aren't directly elected um some would argue for obvious reason. Um, so what kind of accountability measures are in place for NATO decision-making procedures? Yeah, well, um, you know, we've just been talking about matters of, of life and death. Mm. So, uh, and, and of, of potentially of national survival. I mean, so accountability is extremely important and it's a, it's a very good question you ask. Uh, we've said earlier, haven't we, in this 
conversation mm. that NATO is not a supranational organization. Mm. It is simply a collection of uh, countries that have agreed to be allies at the moment, 30 of them. Mm -hmm. uh, these countries each have their own accountability procedures uh, for what they decide, what their governments decide. So uh, the, 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 the man or woman on the street uh, has a, a say over what NATO is doing through their government that mm -hmm. they have uh, elected and uh, through their representatives. And that government gives uh, its representatives at NATO, so ambassadors like me, their instructions for what they can and what they cannot agree to. And uh, those uh, diplomatic and, and military instructions uh, provide the basis for agreement on NATO action uh, uh, that uh, may then lead uh, in extreme circumstances to NATO military action down a command chain uh, where each level is accountable uh, to the to the one above uh, on a uh, different completely different but also quite important matter uh, NATO's finances are subject to external audit uh, for example uh, and uh, in terms of day-to-day uh, -day operations uh, the 30 nations around that council table all exercise an oversight of what the international civil servants uh, in the NATO organization and the uh, military in the two strategic commands are getting up to. So there's uh, a lot of uh, checks and balances. Yeah, no, there's, there's, it's, it's a mixture of, um, I, I would I would argue kind of professional accountability from um, within of, of the different levels, as you, as you mentioned, but also um, indirect democratic accountability in the sense that you, um, you know, living in a democracy, you elect and, 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 and select your government. And that government then is the collective voice of the British people that then goes and, you know, lobbies and, and argues and, well, preferably not argues, debates is probably the hopefully more accurate term um, within NATO to then, you know, push decisions that are hopefully what, what the what the people want. And if the people don't want that, then you then you vote for another for another party to be in power. Um, yeah. One one final question I'd, I'd like to ask you for me is um, and. I, I don't recall if the situation's ever happened, but if there were to be, say, one member state that were to, um, I don't know, get into a, I wouldn't say conflict necessarily, but get into a challenge with another member state, um, does NATO have a have a process to dealing with, with, with that kind of internal uh, between member to member issue? Or is it one of those things where, well, we kind of protect from outside, so we're kind of going to let you two squabble, squabble amongst yourselves until you resolve it? Kind of situation. Yeah, it's, a, it, it's, it's a very good question. Um, and I'm afraid the answer is that it, it depends a bit. <laughs> um, so uh, some uh, NATO allies uh, may fundamentally disagree on a particular issue mm. uh, or a question uh, that uh, the, the alliance is facing. Uh, and they will stand out and make themselves very awkward. Uh, and uh, 
eventually uh, a compromise will have to be found mm. uh, because uh, to repeat nobody can be outvoted here every single ally has a veto um, but uh, and, and, and you know, some allies uh, quite frequently make themselves uh, un, uh, inconvenient and unwelcome in that way and provided they're prepared to take the heat from the other members of the club uh, then uh, you know Good on them. Uh, but you're asking an, another uh, kind of question in a way, which is where the uh, relationship between two allies has really deteriorated. Mm. And uh, there the picture is, uh, is, is mixed. Uh, and there's a, there's a very clear example that uh, is easy to point to, which is the uh, very frequently bad relations between Greece and Turkey, mm. uh, two countries that have been members of NATO ever since 1951, but who have had constant spats and military confrontations uh, over that period. And some of the time, uh, NATO in one way or another gets involved and tries to uh, mediate or exert uh, diplomatic pressure for uh, the two sides to find uh, compromise and, and ways forward. And sometimes the alliance reckons this is just too difficult and, and chooses to live with it. Mm. Um, uh, so it, 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 it's a bit like uh, what I was saying about uh, decisions about diplomacy versus military uh, being dependent on a, uh, the particular circumstances of a crisis as to how you sort it out when things get ugly between allies. But let, let's face it, uh, allies uh, can fall out, uh, have uh, fallen out, uh, uh, and probably will continue to do so. Because uh, when you've got a club that is now as large as uh, NATO's is, 30 different countries, there are a lot of different uh, points of view there and a lot of different national interests. The, the important thing is that uh, everybody still agrees on the value of uh, sharing in a collective defense mm. so that uh, you will be looked after by the alliance if you get into serious trouble with an external threat, yeah. um, not necessarily an internal one. Right. And it, it's that kind of... Um... It's like a mixture of, again, if you bring 30 of your friends together and you all kind of share one view. Um, and let's be honest, we all, we, all have, we all have a couple of those kind of people in our friendship circles, which you know when you bring them into a room, they're going to start arguing or potentially saying snide remarks. And you just kind of live with it. Sometimes you get involved to kind of quiet them down. But in general, you know, as you say, there's that kind of collective one view of we're going to have each other's back if there's an external um, threat. But internally, it's that kind of, um semi let you deal with it yourself semi get involved depending on depending on the situation i guess yeah that that, that that's nicely put i i draw a, a distinction that may be helpful for listeners between uh nato unity uh frequently nato is not all that united and nato cohesion uh, which has always been there um people have always stuck together when it really matters uh, and that is which the, is the important thing right that's the really important thing 
that uh, when the going gets tough, uh, NATO holds together uh, and collectively uh, resists aggression. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Kind of like a hornet's nest, wouldn't it? It looks like they're buzzing around kind of aimlessly, but if you ever poke a hornet's nest, they will come together and <laughs> it's not. <laughs> yeah, pretty. well, I, I'm not sure I would uh, choose to describe maybe, maybe not a hornet's, hornet's nest, <laughs> nest, but but um, uh, it, 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 it's got an underlying strength mm. that I know from uh, years of personal experience is is greater than it looks to the outside observer, mm. and that is possibly uh, and regrettably uh, underestimated in Moscow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, time will tell how, what the uh, what the future holds, but it's definitely it's definitely a um, an interesting slash terrifying prospect in terms of how much new technology is going to potentially change. Um, the way we we view um, not just conflict, but how conflict affects us, because you're you're, you're 100 percent right. Like it's something that we have. We've had the privilege of not being affected by um, conflict, especially here in the West. And um, that potentially may or may not change with with technological advancements. Yeah. Uh, so I, I really do think it's uh, these, these are matters that should concern every citizen. Uh, and uh, that uh, people need to be well informed on because it uh, it really could uh, upend their lives uh, if we don't handle things on the behalf of uh, our societies uh, in the best possible way. Uh, Technology in particular is making it harder and harder to uh, do defence in a straightforward way i think because it makes things so complex yeah no definitely definitely um adam thank you so much that was absolutely amazing um and um yeah as you say it's 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 a very it's going to be a very interesting world i think is the is the (laughs) uh, happy way possibly possibly in the chinese sense of interest You know what we you know what we all mean when we say it's going to be an interesting interesting times ahead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, well, hold on tight for the ride. Thank you for listening to season 3 of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. This podcast is produced by Shata UK and edited by Sabina McKenzie Brown. Make sure to follow Shoutout UK on Twitter and Instagram to get updates on all our upcoming episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to the Media Minded podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast fixed. This podcast is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Mission to NATO. Thanks for listening, and remember, stay informed.